morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. Please hear this reading of God's Word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him and to to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Peyton. Since Easter, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, based on uh, the recollection that the Apostle Peter had sharing his experience with Jesus. And he gives us a very vivid and concise description of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' baptism and temptation when he begins his ministry, his powerful teaching as he begins to share God's gospel in the synagogue. He begins to talk about himself as the Son of Man, the fulfillment of the Messianic promises in the Old Testament, and shows what those really mean, what the terms mean. We've seen him expand the notion of who the people of God are by getting involved with people who did not keep the law, getting involved with people who were considered sinful, even traitors. And last Sunday, we saw Jesus in the synagogue redefining what the Sabbath law was all about. The Sabbath is for men. It is a time of rest, a time of renewal. So outraging the authorities that, as we saw last week, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees were the keepers of the law. The Herodians were the followers of King Herod, who'd been put in place by the Romans, and so was considered an interloper. So what does Jesus do? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. This is the theme in the Gospel, where Jesus challenges and goes to the the centers of Israel 
but also withdraws and spends a lot of time uh, in the desolate areas of Israel, particularly around the Sea of Galilee. But notice, a large crowd from Galilee followed. Jesus' ministry is beginning to gather momentum. We're beginning to see the shape of his ministry and the impact of his ministry. And first of all, the crowds. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. This is a large area. This is in the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. But this is a large catchment area. People have heard about him. The word has spread. And people want to see Jesus. They're coming from all over. They're bringing their problems because they've heard that there's a new kind of teaching, a man who heals, a man who has authority. And you're beginning to see here how Jesus' ministry is starting to challenge the world, to create a new community in the world, a new way of being. Now, surely these crowds didn't have a strong idea of who Jesus actually was. We know from the Gospels that even the um, disciples and the apostles who were with him for three years got it wrong repeatedly. So this crowd, they must have been coming for all different kinds of reasons. You know, some of them surely were sick in a time when there were no doctors and no hospitals. But also some surely were just there because of the excitement to see something new, to hear something new. Some came to learn. We know that some of them wanted a revolutionary leader to arise who's going to throw off the yoke of Rome. And some must have just been desperate, hopeless, afflicted, destitute looking for some kind of hope. But they also, they all share one thing. They're there for their own reasons, their own agenda. They want something from Jesus, but basically they want Jesus to solve some problem so that they can get on with their life. So they can go away and follow their own agenda, create their own existence, live out what they think is the good life. And this is very common in the church. When I was uh, a pastor in the city, we had a prayer service. In fact, we've done several of them here in Hoboken, too. But there's one guy I always remember. He showed up, and he was wearing very, very expensive clothes. Bald head. His neck was shrunken. He was obviously sick, shrunken into his expensive collar and his expensive suit. And it turned out that uh, he had brain cancer. And he was desperate. That's the only reason he would show up to a prayer service, an anointing service. And I remember he, um, he looked at me. I came over to pray with him and to anoint him with oil. He looked at me with these desperate eyes. Um, he didn't want the prayer. He didn't want to hear about God. He was not interested in worship. He wanted to be fixed. He wanted the magic oil the magic words of power, whatever it was that I had to offer. He just wanted to be fixed. He wanted a fix for his illness so he could get on with his own life, go back to living without God, without reference to God, living according to his own agenda. But there's a different way. 
of relating to Jesus. And we see that right here. You've got the world, you've got the crowds, you've got the people who are responding to come and see, check it out, see this new thing, this new person, this new teaching. But then you also get the disciples. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. If you remember, when Jesus first talked to the disciples, he said, come and see. See what I'm about. But then he said, come and follow. That is, lay down your old life, your own old agenda, and follow me. Pick up my agenda. See what I am about. And you see them here. You know, surely those nets, the, those boats that the uh, disciples went to find were their own boats. They were fishermen. Now, instead of using their boats to fish for their own, their own income, they're using the boats to serve Jesus. They've crossed a line. They have become followers of Christ. They have become the disciples, the proto-church, a new community. By the way, um, I had not noticed this before. I always pictured Jesus kind of tramping around in the desert, dusty. But if you look at the early part of his ministry, he spent most of it around Galilee, crisscrossing Galilee in his boats. So here you have an amphibious Jesus, which I had never considered before. But what you're seeing here is a progression, the shape of the Christian life. It starts with an invitation, and anybody can give you the invitation. Come and see. Check it out. See what this Jesus person, what the church, what this Christian thing is all about. Just have a look at it. No pressure, no commitment. Just see. But then there's a moment when you cross from just looking, just observing, to beginning to participate, to beginning to follow, to have Jesus as your shepherd, have the direction and the agenda of your life changed. And that's what has happened with the disciples. And notice also it's a spiritual transition. Whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Wherever Jesus was, there was a spiritual confrontation, a crisis. He is holy. He is the kingdom of God because he is the king. And he comes into a dark world and invites people to cross into that kingdom. You know, we have a wonderful welcome ministry in our church, and we talk about this and pray about this. What is our welcome at the front door? Well, on one side is the world, people going about their business. But every now and again, somebody shows up and wants to enter into a church. Now, something's going on. That's not a natural thing for anybody to do. And the first conversation that they have with the welcome ministry or whoever's standing at the door, 
That is a spiritual encounter. The world touching the kingdom of God. And how that first conversation and those first words go oftentimes will determine whether people will cross over that line and come in. Jesus is creating a space of light in a dark world, a place of spiritual relationship with God in a world that largely doesn't care. And he is, starting with the disciples, beginning to grow that kingdom. Yeah, he's going to say later in Mark, we're going to look at this in the next chapter, Jesus says to the disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But for those on the outside, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. The kingdom of God is not a matter of facts, or head knowledge, or agreement. It is a spiritual movement, a transformation. Theologians talk about it as the order salutis, the order of salvation. And it begins with a call. It begins with the preaching of the word. We've seen how wherever Jesus went, the first thing he does is preach. Before healing or anything else, he speaks the words of God. And those words have such power that when the Holy Spirit applies them to a human heart, that heart is melted, regenerated. When you truly hear the sweetness of the gospel, that God loves you, that God would sacrifice anything, including his son, to ensure that you could be in relationship with him, when you hear and realize the true sweetness of that, it melts your heart. Hard hearts become soft, become regenerated, become filled with the Spirit. And that's the basis of faith. And that in turn leads to repentance. And that in turn leads to following God. It is a spiritual movement, a spiritual journey, and every Christian is on that journey. It starts with come and see, it continues with come and follow. When we begin to change the direction of our life and the priorities of our life. And we're going to see in a moment, it ends with come and be. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. They're right there on the, uh, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Why does Jesus go up on a mountain? That's an odd thing to do. Well, he's recapitulating the creation of Israel. If you read the story of Israel, God called Israel out of Egypt into the desert to Mount Sinai and on the mountain gave them the law which turned them from slaves, a rabble of slaves, into a holy nation that made them God's witness to the world. And the 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So what is Jesus doing? He is recapitulating the story of the creation of Israel. 
He is showing us that the Christian church that he is building has its foundation in the 12 disciples, just as Israel had its foundation in the 12 tribes, and that this new community, this new people, will be God's people, holy, set apart for God's purpose. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons so that they might be with him. Here is the final call. The first is an invitation. Come and see. Anybody can offer that invitation. Anybody who invites somebody to church. But then there is a more personal and direct call from God. Come and follow. Make Jesus your king, your shepherd. Follow him and trust him and he'll bring you home. But then there is another call, not for everybody, but for some, to come and be with Christ. That is, to be like him. To take up his call. To preach. To have authority, spiritual authority, to drive out demons. To become, ultimately, apostles. By the way, that's an interesting word in Greek. It comes from apostolos, a naval word, which means to send out an expedition to create a colony. You know, think of Greece and all the islands and all the coastlands. You send out apostles to create fresh new Greek colonies. Well, that's exactly what he's going to call these apostles to do. Go out into the world and create these new communities centered on Christ created by authority given to the apostles by Christ, spiritual communities, spiritual colonies in a world that ignores God. Jesus, before he leaves his apostles for the last time, says this to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the commission given to the apostles. That is the commission given to anyone who would follow Christ and who would be like him, take up his agenda, take up his purpose. So what does it got to do with us? Well, I think what you have here is a picture of the Christian life, the Christian journey. You know, when I think about my own life, it followed this pattern. I became a Christian later in life at the age of 30, gave God no thought until then, and a number of things happened in my life. My, I was at uh, college, and I got disenchanted with what was happening um, in the, Amer- the English literature department I was in. It was being torn apart by politics and political correctness. This was even, you know, even in my day, political correctness was there. They didn't believe in truth or beauty or meaning. Everything was political. I was fed up. My longest relationship blew up. I had nothing to offer. Didn't know why I was alive, had no purpose, no direction. 
And then somebody said, come to the Bible study. A group of graduate students on campus was studying the book of John. And they literally said, come and see what it's like. No commitment, just have a look. And I was enchanted. The Gospel of John is still my favorite. And then one of them said, come and see what a church is like. Now the church out there on Long Island where I was was wretched, and I did not go back. It was horrible. And then sort of out of desperation, one of them said, well, there's a new pastor in Manhattan. Come and see him with me. And it was Tim Keller. And my journey had begun. And I would sit at the back, anonymous, just to see what these crazy Christians were about. I, I sat in the back row of the balcony, so if they did anything too weird, I could run. And I did that for several months. And there was a point where what I was hearing started to make sense. You know, I, I was a little suspicious of the financial offering. The whole sin and guilt thing seemed overblown. I did like the music and singing, because I had not done that in my adult life. But it took a while for what I was hearing to make sense. And I remember what made sense first was the idea that Christians had a view of all the world, every step of life, from being a child to dying. Most wisdom that I had encountered was wisdom of the world that either just fit a stage of your life or fit, fit a particular situation that didn't have a sense of the whole, didn't have the sense of a whole human life. And there was a moment when suddenly it just crystallized. It made sense. I think my heart had been won over already, but it took a while for my brain to agree, to give me permission to believe. My arguments grew less and less. I used to argue all the time at the Bible study. I became quiet, and I began to listen more. You know, I'm a, a sailor, and one of the, the most terrible things when you're sailing is to get lost, especially when you're bringing your boat and a crew back to a shore that you're not sure about. And they get sick, and they get stroppy, and they complain to you. And as you try to figure out where you are and read these tables and take sightings, you get sick and everybody's fed up. You're cold and you're wet and you don't know where you are. And if you get it wrong, you're going to die. And it's horrible. And then there's a moment where you take a bearing on something and it comes true. And you're looking at what you know. And suddenly all the stress and all the grief and all the confusion and all the misery is gone because you know how to get home. To me, that's a picture of Christianity. When everything becomes clear and the fear is gone and you see the way home and you want to follow, not just watch and see, but to follow and trust and be, become part of what it is is being revealed to you. You've moved, I had moved, from come and see to come and follow. Where are you? What are you about? Where are you on your Christian journey? Come and see means your life hasn't changed yet. Come and see means you're getting on with your life, with your own agenda, with your own notions of what your life is about, and you just need a fix from God.
You just need him to solve some problem, quiet some doubt or fear, so you can get on with what your life is really about. It is not until you have changed direction that you have picked up his agenda rather than your own, that you've started to say, thy will be done, not my will be done. And then you've crossed that line, that boundary between the world and the kingdom of God, and you become part of the Christian church. But notice, there's another call. When Jesus goes up to the mountain, he calls the disciples. He's already called to come and be with him. What is he doing? He's showing us what it means to be like Christ. Notice, by the way, that he gives them new names. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. What is, what is the significance of that? Well, if you go to the beginning of the Bible, when God creates everything, he gives Adam and Eve the right and the permission to name the new creations, to see what they will name them. It's an act of authority. It's an act of transformation. It's an act of taking responsibility, of becoming something new. What it's showing us is the apostles, those that have taken up Christ's work, are recreated. Men recreated as they're meant to be. And why? Because God, through Christ, was willing to be uncreated, become subject to death on the cross. You see, in Christianity, and this is the essence of it, this is what melts your heart, this is what brings you across that line into the kingdom, is the personal knowledge that Jesus Christ was willing to be uncreated, willing to die, willing to take on all our sin and ugliness so that we could be remade, become holy, become whole and restored. What are we doing when we go to this table? Well, the bread is Christ's body. The cup is Christ's blood. We are consuming him because he is giving us his being himself, everything that he is, so that we can be renewed and restored and regenerated and made whole. But notice that he's broken in the process. He's actually eaten in the process. Because that transference costs him everything. That is the essence of Christianity. That is the sweetness, the bittersweetness of Christianity. When you see Christ doing that for you personally, that's what melts your heart. Jesus Christ is not a set of, just a set of ideas and facts. He's the one who is willing to do that for you personally. The one who truly loves you. The only one who truly loves you. And that's what melts our hearts. That's what brings us into the kingdom. And when we really 
understand it fully, and I think it takes a lifetime. Maybe it takes all eternity. When we really understand it fully, we become like him. We pick up his agenda. We organize our lives on his principles. We set our face towards his father. That's what being a Christian is all about. This is the shape of the Christian journey, the shape of the church. All we have to do is trust and follow, and he will bring us home. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that through Christ you have revealed yourself to us. That through Christ you have given us yourself. A new way of being, a new life, a new relationship with you. Lord, show us how to trust. Show us how to follow you on that journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.